Hey everyone, and welcome to another week here on Scale Up with Nick Bradley. So let me just start by saying that I hope your week so far has been great. I hope it's been relaxing. Maybe it's been productive. I certainly hope it's been happy. And why not, right? It's almost the end of 2022. So happy new year. So you may be thinking, why the emphasis on happy today? Well, this week, our topic is something which in my opinion, is a factor that gets overlooked often when it comes to effectively growing the value of a company. And of course, that's happiness. But I'm not just talking about customer happiness. I'm not even really talking just about employee happiness. I'm talking about your happiness as a founder, as an entrepreneur, because it's so in line with vision, purpose, and mission. So my guest today is Jen Lim, all the way from California. And she is going to take us through a journey of understanding the importance of culture in context of happiness, whether you are a startup or an established business. It's so important to celebrate the wins, but be able to pinpoint what are those two two or three things that are challenging for, for your company. You see, Jen is an absolute world expert on this topic. She is the co-founder and CEO of Delivering Happiness a business consultancy focused on creating happier company cultures. She is also a successful speaker and has spoken on numerous TEDx stages and is the author of the book Beyond Happiness. Now, as I'm talking, you might be thinking, happiness, where have I heard that concept uh, in line with business before? And if you think back, there was a company that was created called Zappos by Tony Shea a number of years ago where it was considered to have the happiest employees on earth. And you guessed it, Jen Lim was part of that journey. She worked with Tony Shea at Zappos. And today we are going to get into all of that and more. But most importantly, we're going to talk about how you can create a culture from scratch. It doesn't matter what size business you are and how you can practically embed a culture of happiness into your business. The difference between a good and great leader is, for me at least, is that they have that level of curiosity to get to that point of feeling uncomfortable about these decisions they're making because then that's when they see the greatest growth. So there we have it. Sit back, relax. As I said, Happy New Year and welcome to the show, Jen Lim. Hey, everybody. It is Nick Bradley here. Welcome to another week, another episode of Scale Up. Today, we are going to get into something that I think is an incredibly fascinating topic and a topic that doesn't get a enough coverage, particularly in terms of my world around how you look at a, a valuable business, how you look at happy employees that are driving performance, how we think about this particular concept in terms of results and impact. And that topic is culture, specifically the impact of company culture and what it can do to drive that performance. So today I have with me a world expert on that topic. Welcome to the show, Jen Lim. Thank you, Nick. It's great to be here. Great. Okay. Awesome. We are coffeeed up. We talked about that before. I got my Starbucks <laughs> yes. here. I know you work with companies like that. Actually, awesome. yeah. This was from Starbucks as well. Ah, there you go. So I've got so, so, every day. Talking a little bit about this just to kick off. It's funny. So I've got a local Starbucks which is close to me. I don't live in a city. I live in in the sort of out in the out in the sticks. We call it in in U the UK, north of London. Uh -huh. And there's uh -huh. a local Starbucks, and they know me so well that this was a free coffee today. Like I just turn up and they give me the free coffee. Nice. But at Christmas time, I get a card. Isn't that cool? 
I just turn off and wow. got, there's Nick's Christmas card. So it just shows you how much money I spend at the place. But <laughs> it's not a bad, not a, it, it does make me go back. There's no question about that. That's great. <laughs> so let's, I'll make let's, sure Starbucks knows we're plugging them right now. Well, they've got plenty of coverage. <laughs> I'll probably have to show that as well so I get more coffees. Okay, so let's get into this. So I know that you have a consultancy that really is about creating happier company cultures. Um, that mm. business, I believe, is called uh, Delivering <clears throat> Happiness. And you've mm -hmm. recently uh, written a book, which is called Beyond Happiness. And as I said from the outset, what I'd like to get from today is a conversation about the importance, the impact of culture, company culture on business performance, and, and actually how we can start to talk about how that drives the value of a company, because mm -hmm. a lot of our listeners are interested in that. Before we sure. do that, let's hear your story. So how did you get into this? Wow. Um, so back in the day, I would say, you know, post.com boom and bust here in, in the Valley. I, I live in here in the Bay Area. Uh, essentially, <clears throat> after I, you know, had that uh, incredible journey and got spit out by it because I got laid off as from a startup, but then I started to really pursue things that were meaningful to me because at that time, not just a layoff. I mean, we saw so much greed. It was insane. It was it was a glorious time, but it was also really depressing. Can you give us a bit of a time of check here, because is this in the whole Silicon Valley when everything was booming? VCs were everywhere. Lots of mm -hmm. cash around. How, yeah, how long ago exactly. are we talking? Like late '90s, early 2000s. Gotcha. So the first one, and uh, coming out of that, I learned a lot of things of what I didn't want to be a part of. And part of it was like, it's not just being in a tech space, because seeing what happened there, 9-11 happened at the same time, found out my dad had stage three colon cancer all within a year. It mm. really kind of smacked me up in the head and said, wait, where are your priorities? And is it really about the money title status? Let's be real. And so it wasn't. And it just started to change my course and in this essence, defining my own values without naming it values at that time which was autonomy, freedom, and relationships. So you so weren't aware that, of those at that point in time? Was that something that you had to explore after this, after the different series it was, of events? After the trifecta of events, that's when I started exploring, wait, what is it that I can base my decisions on, big or small, yep. and not have ever have regret? And those were the three that I basically- How did you, you discover know, them out of curiosity? Myself. Did you have to go and explore them? Or did you have coaching, mentoring? Did you get yourself into a different environment? How, how did it work? It was a combination of everything. And I would say at that time, because, um, you know, being laid off, you have a lot of time, but then also I went to, uh, I decided to go on a trek and a metaphorical, you know, climbing the mountain uh, journey. And I decided to go to Mount Kilimanjaro. Okay. And for me, that was so revealing of what true, you know, true happiness could mean. And that time I wasn't even in the field of science of happiness or positive psychology and seeing how people, and this is after 9-11, so seeing how people had hardly anything, yet they were so generous with their time, with their tea, inviting us in their homes. Uh, and this trip I went with Tony Shea, my um, co-founder, yeah. and it was just so revelatory for, for us for, in different ways. But for me, it's just like, wow, how can you have such meaningful happiness when you basically don't have anything at all, no resources? So that was a life changer for me and being able to understand what, what do I value most? So through that journey and several ones after that, that's where I came to those three that I just mentioned. Yeah. I mean, it's fascinating. I, um, when I left, I say I left the world of private equity because I don't work with the private equity firms anymore. But after um, the mm. exit I, I spoke to you about off 
off air, um, I had a very similar experience. My dad had cancer. I had a lot of things mm. going on and I had to go and change uh, effectively belief systems, right? Things, mm -hmm. things that I thought were true previous to that in my experience in, in that kind of pretty frenetic world of, of financial capital markets to sure. then go and find more meaning and purpose. So I was mm. asking really just out of curiosity because it sounds like there's some alignment in our stories. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And, and you also mentioned, yeah. obviously, Tony Shea. Were you, did you, were you working at Zappos at any point? Or Yeah, so to your original question, that's kind of when uh, I started contracting at Zappos. So it's still okay. the early days. It was still a startup, more or less. And through that, uh, started working on culture before it was a buzzword. It was kind of like, hey, how do we get people to really want to come to work every day? And it was just through these, I, th I think of it as a Petri dish. Uh, Zappos was a Petri dish of experimentation on applying things like positive psychology and science of happiness in a workplace. Because before that, it was very academic. And you would think was that intentional? Would be I mean, was it intentionally created or was it really just trying to maybe do things that others weren't doing? You know, that whole idea it, that if you, people, when people zig, you zag, that sort of stuff. <laughs> I think part of it is that. But I think also it's because of personal curiosity. I think Tony was very curious about it. I was super curious about thinking, wow, there's actually these things, you know, these existential questions that we're all asking. And yet there's actually research being done on topics of things that people think are so fluffy, like happiness. So by pouring into that kind of research and those kind of books, it just became a natural sort of like, well, why don't we try and do this at work? Let's um, just for people, I mean, I think people listening to this know a little bit of the story. And, and, and there was obviously a point in time where the whole Zappos culture thing was was such a mm. big talking point. Mm -hmm. Can you just articulate what what do you think was done in that company? Because I'm sure some of that learning and experience you've then taken forward to <clears> what you do now. What was mm -hmm. so um, different and impactful about the culture at Zappos? So I think, well, because there was such a high priority on that, it made, it, I mean, setting the tone at the sea level to say this is essentially one of our priorities to make our goal of being a billion dollar company in less than 10 years. So yeah. it was very clear, you know, from that um, commander's intent, if you will. I think at the same time, but because we were into the science of it, it was very clear that there are certain ways, certain levers, as we say, to increase happiness in a human being. So therefore, we said, well, why don't we do this for our employees? And those levers include giving people a sense of autonomy or control, as they say, or a, and a sense of progress is another lever. Mm -hmm. Another lever is also connectedness, so true, meaningful relationships in the workplace. And then finally, the last lever that we used is the most sustainable form of happiness, which is purpose having a higher purpose for your company beyond making just more money. And using those levers was what I think made the difference because, because we based it on science, we were able to sort of like test new things. So as an example, back in the day, uh, marketing department uh, for, well, actually, you know, for, for product development, mm -hmm. there was a certain course, like two years to get from entry level to be a buyer, you know, it was a big deal. And instead of just saying, okay, you have these two years to do it, to test this element of having a sense of progress, we basically divvied those sort of like two years into milestones along the way and celebrated them. Said, hey, congratulations, this is where you got, and this is where you need to go. And in that alone, you know, no additional money was added to like, no, you know, no increased pay, anything like that. 
we saw happiness levels rise because how, how did you measure the happiness says, as well? Sorry to jump in, but I'm curious, how did you measure happiness? Um, back at Zappos, it was more of um surveys, internal surveys. Okay, so so okay, yeah. we can we can get into how we how we do that now because I'm sure it's progressed since then. But I was just curious. It's a lot more metric. now. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Okay, sorry yeah. to interrupt, but I just wanted—I'm just no, no. curious about how how those things are are determined. Because actually, I'm as I'm asking you these questions, I'm also thinking about my own playbook here when I go in and do company evaluations. So totally, <laughs> it's kind of useful. I love right? that you do that. Totally, and the biggest—I mean, the simplest form and way to think about it is just measurement comes from. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but measurement comes from benchmarking wherever you're at yep. and being able to consistently measure what matters first, figuring out what <laughs> measuring what matters first, and then consistently doing that to the benchmark. Because okay. essentially, <clears throat> like when you're talking about retention or engagement or productivity, those are all very loose words until you actually like pin it down on certain things and specifically to, you know, the the function or department or the team that you're measuring for. Yeah. And, and I think the other thing I find interesting about this topic is, you know, we've talked about certain principles like purpose or progress, mm -hmm. but it's how you activate it. And this, and this mm -hmm. is, again, my, I'm naive to the detail around Zappos, but again, it had a lot of, a lot of people talk about it. And what I mean by that is how do you take a concept and activate it in a way that drives a, the result that you want, but also gets the buy-in mm -hmm. from the people internally to be able to do that. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing. I'm so because you know a lot of this can sound like rainbows and unicorns, but what it really comes down to is systemic change. Yeah, like okay. how do you make these things practical in a way that people can actually feel that they're being heard and understood and cared for? Mm -hmm. That's how you get buy-in. It's kind of saying, look. We actually care about you. And this is so, so important now more than ever, right? Like, I think the great resignation is happening not just in the US. I've heard it you know, happen in, across global, the pond where you're global at. Quiet, yeah, yeah, pretty much. And then the quiet <laughs> quitting and, you know, like quiet firing and all so on and so forth. All these terms in some ways, I mean, you've been around the block. Not new at all. <laughs> you know, quiet firing has happened for, for as long as we've been around. Yeah. Um, so just really wearing different clothes in in a different form because now we have to be so mindful and conscious of today's state of the world versus before um so sorry roundabout way to answer your question it's being able to identify very specifically in your surveys and it's not just having your engagement surveys it's like stats and stories like listening very attentively as leaders what is going on and celebrating the wins to be so important to celebrate the wins, but be able to pinpoint what are those two, two or three things that are challenging for, for your company, for your teams and make those actionable because then they're being, they feel like, Oh, they're, I'm being heard. Uh, they actually know this is challenging me. I, I'm burnt out. You know, number one thing that's plaguing the world's workforce right now, according to Gallup. And we all feel that. So by being able to identify it, transparently communicate it and say, hey, we can't fix this tonight or tomorrow, but we will be on the journey to do it together. Communication like that. And then of course the actions to back it up, but knowing that people are just tired of hearing the same old spiel and they just want real talk. <laughs> so the more we do that as leaders, the more we can make sure that they feel heard and we're actually adding value by their productivity, by their re-engagement, by not being burnt out all the time and being able to have these honest conversations more than ever before. 
So we're going to come back and go a little bit deeper into that in a second, but I want to, I want to finish the, the kind of journey a little bit here. So you, you're sure. working with, with Zappos, you're working with Tony Shea. Um, what, I, I th what actually ended up happening with Zappos? Was it sold in the end? Uh, it was sold to Amazon. Um, uh, and, and the brand was then, was it, was it, was it basically absorbed and consolidated in? Because Actually, it was, it stayed and it still exists today in, uh, as a very separate entity of, but, you know, acquired by Amazon. Right. And what was interesting about the acquisition, it was very clear. It was actually documented and signed off on how separate their cultures would be. And that's, you know, it was a huge thing to the leadership team at Zappos to re retain their culture. And Jeff actually said that, you know, announced that, like, we want to make sure it stays intact because that's what makes Zappos special. Well, I'm sure so they would have really paid cool. for that too. They, they would have been, you know, we, talk, we talked <laughs> again, we had a, a brief conversation before pressing record about how you yeah. align, you know, culture can create a, a very uniqueness, right, about a company, about a proposition, and yeah. there's a value to it. And, you know, if you buy a business with a multiple that has a quotient of that because of the uniqueness of that culture, the last mm. thing you want to do is squash it. <laughs> Turn it <into laughs> exactly. But the reason I bring that up is in my old world, that's we kind of used to squash cultures all the time because there was no right. real appreciation of how to integrate. So, yeah. so obviously that happens. So Amazon buys Zappos. And is mm -hmm. that when you and Tony decide to, to take what you've created, obviously, you know, passion around this stuff and then create yeah. the business that you have now? Well, Tony kept on, he was still the CEO of Zappos after the acquisition. And then he got really impassioned by other things like downtown project and basically revitalizing That's in that. Vegas, isn't it? Is that the um, yes. container park? Uh, yes. So it's downtown Vegas container park. Have you been there? I have. Yeah. I'm, there's yeah. a really good bar next door to it. Um, the Atomic Bar, Atomic. I think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I've, I think I've it's that. the... Yeah. One of the, the oldest bars, I think, uh, not only in the state, maybe in the... Yeah, total total or, segue to our conversation here, but if you ever get to yeah. Vegas, go, go to the, the, the sort of downtown part and you'll see um, this project that we're talking about. But there's also a cool bar yeah. where you can, like, they used to sit on the roof and watch atomic bombs going off, which is just bizarre. But anyway, <laughs> let's get back on track. Yeah, so he was he was very focused and, you know, very, very passionate about that project. And I ended up after the book Delivering Happiness came out in 2010, we saw there was a need for happiness, a demand for happiness and seeing the value in it in the workplace specifically. So I uh, decided to create a company around that. And then that's when I basically started leading as CEO of uh, Delivering Happiness. Right. And what, and what is, I mean, let's get into, into the, the, the core piece here. What is happiness? How do you define that? So I get, again, go back to the science of it. And I do that just because um, the biggest naysayers in the room can't say nay because it's based yeah, on data. You can't be too subjective then, can you? You can be objective right. and say, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So what it comes down to is like the happiness comes from a sense of authenticity, living true to the core of who you are. Happiness comes from a sense of having... Um, well, you can say passion in one way, but basically being able to fulfill what you've, you know, can bring to the world in your own way. And ultimately happiness, individual happiness comes from having that sense of, I'm going to use the word again, higher purpose. And that purpose is simply just being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. So that's how it's been defined since the days of Aristotle and Socrates, fast forwarded today to, um, uh, yeah, today's modern world. And so if we think about happiness in those ways, that's how we can tactically and practically implement what it means to make sure people feel more happy 
authentically happy in their work and therefore life. Got it. And is there is there a way of translating that into? I mean, obviously that's that's as you said, that's a very um, universal. Let's call it definition. But but let's mm-hmm. say that I have a, a a company that I'm forming, building, where I want to be very intentional about a culture. And I'll give you an example mm-hmm. of this in a minute um, from from past experience. But I want to take the definition of happiness, but I want it to be expressed in a certain way. Did you mm-hmm. ever get, I mean, I, I might be going down a rabbit hole here a little bit, which I like to do just for warning, <laughs> but do you ever have those sort of conversations Sometimes with CEOs <laughs> or, or, or am I, am I, 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 let me give you the, let me give you the context to the question. Then we yes, can come back to it. So when I first got into, so let's call it the private equity capital markets world, um, mm-hmm. I worked for a company called Getty Images. Mm-hmm. And Getty Images at the time was kind of the poster child, if you want to call it that, for how to scale, grow, exit companies and create billions and billions of shareholder value. The company, the company, I think, in total has been bought and sold six times. It's been mm-hmm. on, it's been IPO'd, it's been brought off the market, it's been sold to private equity, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what mm-hmm. was interesting about it is if you spoke to the founder, he would talk about a culture there. And it was really assertive like super assertive, mm. you know, mm. um, he said, he would say things like, uh, no one's allowed to be strategic in this business other than the board and everyone mm-hmm. else we employ has to be operationally precise. We value precision. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have 10 interviews to get a job, which I know is not new. It happens in other businesses and you would get measured on your operational capability. Mm-hmm. And that was the culture. And you were measured against it by this weird, weird sort of thing. You'd have a meeting and then you'd get like a, uh, an informal 360 done in almost like being spied on mm-hmm. an informal 360 <laughs> thing was done. But what's interesting yeah. about that is uh, people stayed there forever. Like they didn't mm. leave maybe because they felt like they felt like home and the company, mm-hmm. the shareholder value of the company went through the roof and still has, so it's still going. So this is not like a business that went boom and then crashed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the reason I asked before about, you know, happiness, the definition of happiness is in that culture. I don't know if, if the definition you said was kind of really obvious, maybe it was, but it certainly attracted a certain type of person in that mm-hmm. environment. And if you like that environment and you were that type of person, you were successful and I was there and I was happy, but I maybe mm-hmm. not have thought it through. So that that's where I was going. Uh, <laughs> commentary, context comment, helps. Com- commentary, please, Jen, as an expert. Context in this stuff, counts. You're saying this sounds like a terrible company. What were you doing? There? But, <laughs> Well, you know, what's funny as you're telling your story and sharing that context, which is very key. Thank you. I'm looking over your shoulder at Steve Jobs looking at you because that's just a really great example of, you know, he wasn't. What I love about that story with Getty is that <clears throat> this, the founder or CEO is very, very transparent, very yeah. straightforward. This is you know what you see is what you get. And that's lovely, you know, because there are certain people, as I look at Steve Jobs looking at you, like <laughs> Apple was not, hey, come work at Apple so you can be happy. That was not what it's about at all. Um, but yet when people go to Apple, like it's a huge badge of honor. They stay there for a long time and because they're so connected to, well, their product. But in the end, you know, they have a higher purpose too, whether they mm-hmm. state it or not. So there are just certain cultures that work that way and people want to be in those cultures. So I think the point of it all is that every company has their own DNA. Every company has their own founder story, origin story. And then from there, how does it want to grow? What I think is most effective in, and it doesn't happen because we're not trying to 
um, you know, twist anyone's arms and and say, be a happy culture and <laughs> be a happy company. That's not our business. You know, it really comes back to leadership, how they want, how they want to see things run and whether or not they are, you know, I think the biggest epiphanies that we have with leaders is when they realize, oh, it's not all about growing this business, is it? It's not all about making the most money, is it? And that's when they kind of turn inward to say, oh, there's a different purpose for me here rather than running and, and growing an amazing company that's making billions of dollars. So that's more of where we want to target because that's where you see that sense of ownership of from that level of, yes, it's not just on the profit side, it's actually I want my people to be growing and be happy as well. Do you think that's, I mean, that's a great articulation of it. So thank you as well for that. But do you also think that that's also a bit of a shift? You know, obviously we've gone through pretty oh, yeah. seismic change in the last few years. Globally. Huge, huge. Yes. I like uh, my brother likes to say, don't let a good pandemic go to waste. And I think a lot of leaders have decided, you know, during this last two and a half years have, have reflected, you know, how, are they really spending the time that they want in the right ways? So yeah, there's been a huge shift. And I think a line has been drawn in the sand as to how leaders want to run from one perspective or go back to the good old days of how it was before. And that's what I think is the trickle down symptoms of what we're seeing with the great resignation and quiet quitting, so on and so forth. Because more and more people also, at all leaders of all levels, have decided that they want to take it upon themselves to live their lives in a more meaningful way. So that's why I think it's, if we want to see, like the future of work is basically here as leaders, if we want to be able to say, hey, I realize that people are assets, not expenses, and this is the way I would need to do this differently. I would need to make sure that I'm carrying my people along. I want to make sure that they're growing and feel fulfilled and are not just showing for the paycheck. Like in this last year, Great Place to Work had a study of showing that those companies that actually really had a purpose, that people showed up not feeling like they're just, you know, here for the job, had retention rates like up to three times higher than those that didn't. So for those leaders that are thinking in those terms, and not all of them are, like your example with Getty and your example with jobs in the past, which is okay because those companies can still flourish in their own ways of how they define success and flourishing. But I think if we want to see things from a more progressive way and tap into what's going on today with how it's such an open book, when we can talk about mental health and well-being in more real talk ways than ever before, I think it's just something that as a leader that wants to really try and grow and progress in today's society, today's world needs to um, reframe that people are actually our investments. And if we reinvest in them, they will reinvest in us. Mm, okay. Fascinating. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about smaller businesses versus larger businesses for a sec. So by mm -hmm. smaller businesses, let's say they might have, you know, over 50 employees, but maybe not more than say a few hundred. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're competing with the resources of some of the larger corporates, you know, and there's obviously a, let's call it a war, but certainly a, uh, a stretch for talent right now. A lot of acquisitions that happen are really to buy people, buy, buy the capability than it is about buying the businesses because of some of the reasons we've talked about. But mm -hmm. if you're a smaller business and you're listening to this and you're thinking, do you know what, how can I, how can I use culture as a competitive advantage? Okay. Mm -hmm. How can I 
you know, become more attractive, even though I don't have the resources maybe that some of these big companies do, but how can I use culture and the way of working with us to, to distinguish myself, to be like a beacon to attract talent mm-hmm. that might, that I might not be able to attract as easily if I didn't do that. Sure. So first off, being a smaller company versus a large one, like kudos to you because it's easier to actually implement these things yes. in, in the, in tactical ways. Um, how I would look at it. So I'll just give you an example. We worked with a construction materials company um, and Basically, when they realized that by focusing on, you know, prioritizing their people through culture, they found that the number of applicants that they received tripled and in in the course of like a couple months. And the quality of the applicants actually increased as well because they were so forthcoming and being very communicative, like Getty was in their own way. Yes. But in this way, they said, hey, we actually want to you know, we're prioritizing you and your happiness. And that alone, especially thinking about this very competitive marketplace, not only did they have new applicants that were higher quality, they had their basically old employees that had fit, you know, quit or, you know, tried to change direction come back because of that sense of like, oh, I'm feeling cared for. And so that's on the attraction retention side. But then when you see, when you just and this is not high money type of situations. Like for example, I love this story about this you know, doctor's office, and this gentleman came up to me. This was in New York after a talk. I did a you know a keynote, whatever, and he came up. He's like, "I know exactly what you mean about this stuff. I love going to my doctor's office." And I said, "What? You know, like who the heck loves going to the doctor's office?" He's like, "Last time I went, uh, so I realized it's because the receptionist gave me her business card, and on it was the title." director of first impressions. And that was it. Like, you know, there was no, you know, big money thing going on there. It was the fact that she owns her job and she loves it. And she lights up everyone's, you know, lights up all the patients, lights up all their customers. So just simple things like that. It's like, you don't have to think about ways. You just have to be creative in, in getting people to engage and love what they do, even though it seems like a menial task or whatever. But when you get that and you get everyone having that sense of alignment of their own purpose and values, you get a really strong connection amongst your teams to be able to achieve those outcomes of being more productive, being more engaged, et cetera, then that would, you know, ladder up to your own profitability and bottom line. Is there a difference between creating a culture from scratch, let's say in a startup versus in terms of the process here, um, versus having to try and change a culture that may not be aligned with Mm. the direction of the company or the performance? I I think it's always easiest when you're starting as a startup because you're able to define and really get a sense of our belief system was back in the day, we asked everyone to actually submit their values. So personal values, as in what's important. Personal values. Yeah, exactly. So that is not just the leader's intent on these are my values. So therefore you have to live by them. I mean, that's especially right now wouldn't go very, very well. It doesn't feel good, does it? Even even just the way you expressed it doesn't sound great. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Imagine if you're trying to interview for that. So that that's, I think as a startup is actually easier, but you just need to commit to it. You know, going through that first round of what are all your values? 
here's the collective, here are the top five, here are the top five or 10, and these are the ones that we're going to test for the first year or two. And then it makes it so much easier to actually hire the next round of people for as a startup as well. But unfortunately, most of us are not startups, which is totally fine because yep. that's, you know, let's just be honest and real. Like a lot of companies are just hesitant in even going to try to address these culture things because it's so much work. But the reality is that all you have to do is draw a line in the sand and say, let's just start here. There's no perfect time. Just like there's no perfect time having a child. There's no perfect time to start changing your culture. But in these very clear steps that we've seen very effective ways of how leaders can, you know, just draw the line in the sand, ask the questions, you know, what's going well, what's not going well, be attentive in the listening, and then be able to share the celebration. Here are our wins and here are our challenges and how this is now, how we're going to address these things together. So I think, you know, we talked about this before you started, uh, started recording, like that's how we take things like values and, you know, purpose statements to be meaningful words, not words just stuck on the wall or in a fancy brochure. Like when you actually have values and define behaviors out of those values. So this very black and white as to what we are as a, you know, a company expecting out of these, um, uh, out of these values, then you actually see it lived in a real way. And you see that if you, as a leader, are rewarding and recognizing and incentivizing by these values and behaviors, then people know that you really mean it and they will actually start living by it too. So that's the difference I think between when you see companies like Airbnb or Patagonia and how purpose-driven they are. And it's just not words on the wall because every single person within and in their community as well, like with their customers, know what they stand for and they know what they're, you know, they're getting into as being a part of an employee or as being a customer or, you know, part of the community at large. They know what they stand against as well. I mean, I, I, the one exactly. thing I, I reflecting back um, to the Getty example, I said beforehand, we had seven, it was called leadership principles as opposed to values for whatever reason. And mm -hmm. they were statements as opposed to words. And there was a bit of a definition around what the statement meant, but the statement in its own right was kind of pretty clear. So one mm -hmm. of them was bring, bring me solutions. Right. And, and the whole concept was, you know, don't turn up and just present a problem with, you know, if you haven't thought of at least a way of solving that problem, it's not acceptable to be here, right? And so, so mm -hmm. they were quite hard, like they, they weren't fluffy at all, but um, everyone understood them and everyone understood that that's, you know, with those seven principles, you were gonna get measured um, and you were gonna get rewarded too, right? So it wasn't mm -hmm. anything else, but there was a, it was, it was a bit of a more militant type of culture yeah. that worked at that time. But mm -hmm. the, the, question, the question I've got for you really here is, I like to get practical on the show as well. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's say, I've come to you, I've got a company with 50 employees. Uh, the culture's kind of there, but it's not very well defined, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. there, there is obviously a culture because, you know, as, as I'm sure you will agree, if you don't define the culture, there's going to be a culture anyway. <laughs> there's going to be something <laughs> yes, going whether on. whether you like it or not. <laughs> exactly. But how do, you, how do you practically, almost step by step, start the mm -hmm. process of getting intentional about a culture? One of the steps I think, you know, you mentioned beforehand is you, you ask people about their values. Mm -hmm. But but how do you how do you start to take that and then start to craft it and then start to embed it in processes or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. how, sure. What is, what does that journey look like? So what's actually been really interesting since COVID is that the most popular request we've been getting 
is how can we refresh our values? How can we revisit it and actually make sure they're being lived? So this is to your point, like, how do we make it practical? Because we have a culture that's decent or whatever, but we need to make sure we maintain it or grow it. So what we do when we come in is we go through that process of revisiting, are these values actually what represent who you are? Going back to the DNA, going back to the origin story, do these really reflect you as a company and what you believe in and what you do in today's state, in today's world? And so by going through that exercise, number one, we we tend to see the most uh, effective results when we get leadership alignment. So by getting, you know, the five, 10, whatever leaders you have in the company in a room, nine times out of 10, if you ask them, what does this purpose mean to you? What do these values mean to you? You'll have different definitions all around. So by going through that exercise, we did this with a, a healthcare system. And of course, this is a lot more employees than five, 500 or 50, but they had 300 leaders that we had to align. And in the end of the day, be able to first they define what they thought that meant. And then as, you know, outsider looking in, this is how we kind of made sure that they all aligned in, in how they're de being defined, the value side. So take that, create, revisit values, and then define specific behaviors out of the values. Incredible how so many companies have behaviors, but they don't know what they are. So make sure as a company, you're actually communicating what these behaviors are so that you can actually do the incentivizing and do, you know, like the reward and recognition of, of when team members actually live by them. So when you do the refresh and when you are communicating in a way that this is a part of your evaluation, it's not just your skill set, it's not just your responsibilities at the job, but you are also part of contributing to this culture. And then you start measuring by we what about, if I can just jump in there. What about yeah. what about the people who don't buy in? So so of course in a bigger company, mm. sometimes you'll get people who are cynical about, you know, as you said, it can take a lot of work, right? You so you have to you have to kind of buy into this. Yes, how, it's a how do you how do you influence that? <laughs> yeah. It is a journey. And to, you know, if if it really depends how committed the leadership's uh, leadership is to the concept, because as an example, I have worked with companies that after relaunching their visit, uh, relaunching their values, people actually said, you know, this is, does not sound like me. I don't want to be a part of this. And it's kind of like, okay, well, <laughs> well, here's your package. Thank you for being here. Well, there is a good thing. You can launch a, a cultural change program and, and kind of weed out the people you don't want to be there anymore. That's exactly <laughs> the point. Yeah, it totally is. I mean, it's, it's self-selection in a positive way because at the end of the day, what, what remains, the people that are remaining are those that are fully committed to this sense of being, wanting to be aligned with those values. Like I believe in this. And so if anything, it's, you know, it's actually a gift <laughs> when people want to leave because that's a selection of what you, the people that you want to keep as well. So through that and by implementing those values, being very clear about behaviors, identifying and sharing across the board, then you just start measuring. Measuring like on one end, there's a lot of so many tools now on measuring you know, fulfillment of a, a person, great place to work is a great measurement tool. So it's not just about, again, their role, but it's like all the other elements of what makes a person feel that they want to be a part of the company, which is a lot about fulfillment. So as a leader, I don't think we should reinvent the wheel. What we do is pull what the data points we're already collecting in retention, in engagement, 
in things that we're already measuring and, and correlate those things. Let's just get a little bit more precise here if we can, because one of the things um, I said again before we pressed record was starting to look at the key metrics. And some people just may not know what they are. So let, let's let's understand what they are. Because again, as I said, one of the drivers of value is culture and certainly being able to assess culture. So what are the key metrics that you think are kind of, they, they, they should be in place if you are going to measure effective culture? I think so going with the, the basic uh, metrics that any company could, should be doing anyway, I think, um, regardless of happiness, is the sense of the level of retention, the level of attraction, level of um, engagement. And again, this is, diff- this is different for every industry, um, but in the level of productivity. And that, and of course, this is like, if you, you know, extrapolate that out, that leads to, if you're in the sales team, it's like, profitability you know if you're in the marketing team it's like you know every different function has the metrics that are traditional i think what is what we're layering on top here is also those metrics of an individual's sense of happiness and fulfillment so that needs to be kind of put in the mix of measuring what matters so being able to add those things of do I feel trusted at work? Do I feel that I can speak my um, mind without any sort of retribution or judgment? Do I feel a strong relationship with my manager? Do I sh- feel a strong relationship with my colleagues? So all of these kind of questions is boiling down to a person's sense of, do I really want to be here? And so those are the metrics we're adding on top to the traditional ones to be able to get a sense of correlation. Is there a way of measuring um, before you say buy a company um, the level of uh, I'm going to say I won't say attrition because you can't really get information like that, but I'm talking more about people's maybe desire not to be there because I've I've heard crazy things about like you can look at the number of um, job um, or, or applicants or job ads or whatever is on LinkedIn for example or you can there's a way of assessing <laughs> if people are going to yeah. jump ship. I'm just trying to think of other measures which like if 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 the culture is not great and people are leaving a company then can you can you assess that how, how can you assess that i think it's interesting now that we have other tools out there like glassdoor i don't know how popular this is in the uk but yeah we see the um, um, that's the, that's the, we, i see the interviews and things like that it's like a kind of internal scoring system isn't it against the leadership quite often in the ceo yeah reviews of the it, company yeah and yeah, and so there's other companies like that now, uh, but essentially it becomes because this can be anonymous, where you see actual <clears throat> testimonials from people that work there, and then they're rating their employer. Um, and I think that that's been a pretty reliable source of information. I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think going back to these tools that we're mentioning that I've mentioned, like the Great Place to Work tool, is is very effective in being able to say. And you know, you'll get not just the, the data points, but you'll also get people sharing their sentiment. And I think when you're going into a company by having that kind of survey, where you're not just reading, like, you know, assessing all the data points, but you're reading people's sentiment, then I think it's a pretty accurate measure of, you know, where that company is, um, aside from actually doing the interviews yourself. Have you done any work on the measurements around culture to company value as of yet? 
Um, we actually started working with a VC out in Vietnam and it was really cool because they were just, they were unsure of the value of what, because we were like, this would be amazing for all your, you know, portfolio companies. So then we decided to start with the VC themselves and show them how this all works. <laughs> and then they were totally bought in. They're like, oh, that's what values and behaviors mean. Oh, that's what having a higher purpose that people can align with means. And so now we're, we've been able to like, scale from changing their structure internally to that of their portfolio companies. And the value of it, I think, is, again, measuring what matters for your specific company and industry. So the, there's a difference from measuring, um, you know, from a, a retailer to a pharmacy and all that, because what does it mean, uh, what, what matters most to you as a, as a leader in growing that company? So it's been really cool to see that a VC can understand that they're getting more value by implementing things of having a stronger culture because their people are that much more engaged and productive, and therefore they have a higher sense of um, profitability in in reach. Yeah. I mean, we we talk about it in private equity or have talked about it. Sometimes it's lip service, if I'm honest, you know, depending on the mm -hmm. firm, because if the more progressive firms these days understand that you know, when you acquire a company from someone else, you know, quite often the reason that you're making that acquisition is the founder is going to leave at some point, you know, they're going to work around mm -hmm. for a piece of time, but they're going to, they're going to go. And we talk about the concept of what's called transfer value. So mm -hmm. a business isn't valued on its financials, it's valued on its transferability, right? And a lot of that mm -hmm. is about the future performance of the company, not the performance that's happened before you make the acquisition. Mm -hmm. And the way we express culture a little bit is, is kind of like, glue right it's if yeah. if the culture is so important to what the business has been previously how do we make sure that the bonds that have been created through that are going to be sustainable and, and that's yeah. how we look at it where we're falling cool. down yeah it's it's interesting it's you know mm -hmm. the hard part is like what i was getting at the assessment before you decide to kind of make an acquisition or buy a business and integrate it the assessment of what it actually is and then the way that you protect it by whatever you do and mm -hmm. then how you measure that it's still as good if you like or still as optimized as it was before you made the acquisition and that's the bit i don't know if there's an answer for that yet but that's some of the conversations that we're having around this and it's definitely as yeah. i said one of the five drivers of of value so it's the one that's the hardest or the wooliest to try and grab I think in your position, I think what would be most interesting is just to look at the historical stuff that was collected along the way, just to see what kind of trends there are. Even if they were not trying to figure out what those trends could mean in 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 how it's operationed, operationalized at the company, I think that's interesting in itself. But I think for that situation that you're talking about, what is really, really cool about culture, when you codify it, then you get a sense of the Origin, like origin story, the DNA of it all. So as an example, when we worked at Starbucks, we started this show. This was unintentional. Here we go. Yes, here we go. Um, you know, Howard Schultz had, had been in and out of the company. At the time we were there, there was a, a new CEO. And so a big part of it was codifying the founder's intent and being able to do it in a way that you know you want the company to grow. It is, has to grow and change over time. But at least... Or codifying the founder's intent, and that's I think what would be a cool way to address your issue of like, wait, when the founder leaves, what is this all going to go to hell? 
No, if you are making sure that these principles, these basic things of the values of the purpose are already embedded and actually lived by everyone in the organization, therefore, when the founder leaves, it won't be so disruptive because it's already, you know, systematized in, in how yeah. they work. And then I, I like that language because you can systemize something without making it boring or too process driven, you know, systems yeah. can exist. I mean, again, some of the businesses I've been in, we've had great um, use of technology, for example, uh, to be mm -hmm. able to uh, embed, if you like, or make a process more interesting. Like I mentioned with the Getty thing about the sort of informal 360s, it, it sounds a little bit like big brother type of stuff, mm -hmm. but actually it was quite fun. And what was interesting about it is that you just had to, you had to score someone against how they performed in an interaction against mm. the values of the company. And, mm. and part of our bonus was attributed to that. So it was not just deliver the numbers. It was how you delivered the numbers in line with the values of our company mm. that actually mattered, you mm -hmm. know, and of course it was probably a little bit more traditional in terms of there was a financial benefit to it, but equally there were people who came into the company who, as I said, lots of people stayed. There are a lot of people mm -hmm. who came in quickly and left quickly because they just it didn't fit. So at least, yeah. so I think you know back to performance, back to business performance. Um, whether that culture was was a happy culture or not, it was happy for the people who aligned with it to their own personal values. I believe. Yes, and that's the beauty of it. I think that's if we, if we get anything out of this conversation is is having that level of clarity of how this company works. The way things work in this company are like this. Yes. Then you know, there's just there's you're you're doing a service to everyone, including yourself as a leader, because we all know once you have to hire someone else, it's going to cost at least 150 to 300 percent of their salary, all that stuff, and including a service for the people that are interviewing and knowing that there's you know this great resignation thing is happening for a reason. And yeah, you know, there was a later study out that more and more female leaders are just jumping quickly out of ship and not just female, but all across the board in, in service too. not just, you know, they're fast food people working on the frontliners. We're talking about high senior management type positions where people are now quick quitting because they're just like, I've got choices. So by being that upfront, transparent, clear from the leader uh, leadership, I think it just does everyone uh, it does everyone a better service of establishing, and you might have heard this term too much, a new social contract, I think, with in, between employer and employee. I think we all need to revisit what you, what sounds like, you know, Getty did so amazingly well. It was awesome. Is, would it happen now? I don't know. Would it work today? Maybe, maybe not. But the point is, we as leaders all know our own company the best in being able to create a new relationship with our employees. And the question comes back to us. What is it? What is that yeah. social contract that we want to I think as, as we're talking, I, I'm reflecting a little bit on my own personal experience, of course, with it. But I think the thing that was that we got right is that the club, if you want to call it that, was well-defined, right? The club was well-defined. Mm -hmm. So, you know, back to this idea that you want to hang out with people who have a similar view on life, beliefs, mindset, you know, you mm. either felt welcome or you didn't feel welcome. And it was clear, right? And and there was no, it was kind of unapologetic as well. And mm -hmm. I, I do a lot of um, joining the dots between business performance and sports performance, because it's quite pure when you look at teams that perform and don't, and you can even look at things like momentum. Um, mm. But there is cultures within sporting teams that are very, very clearly defined as well. And some of the ones that are the most successful aren't the nicest. 
but but mm-hmm. at the time that you're there for what needed to be done, they're clear. And I like I like the idea of, um, or you know, being being authentic, having candor, being transparent. Mm-hmm. I think that's important. Yeah. And you bring up sports. I and I love thinking through that because I mean I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but I'm, I'm a massive basketball fan. I have got. Well, actually, I'm a, you're going to hate me. You're going to really hate uh, me because I'm a Celtics oh fan, no. right? And I've got I've got Larry oh Bird no. over here. Here he is. He's, 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 <laughs> he's, I got my signed autograph. So, of course, of course, last year. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, anyway, exactly. I, I do I do like Steph Curry, so I'm not like a total parochial fan. It's all good. We're fine. <laughs> oh, cool. Because uh, I don't know if I could continue this conversation if you didn't respect him at least. We got but, to the end. We're good. <laughs> but the thing with that is like, you know, the Boston Celtics, culture versus the Warriors culture versus the Lakers, like all yeah. them oh, am- amazing champions in their own right. But how they got there are so, so different. Yeah. And and there's a and saying it, as well, which is this, um, you may have heard this before, which is a, a champion team beats a team of champions. And I believe that to a point, right. To a point, because, mm-hmm. you know, you've got these superstars like Jordan have come in and done amazing things. But then again, there was always a culture behind that. It wasn't just him, but mm-hmm. you can also see how a culture can get ripped apart by, you know, someone who comes in, who doesn't align with maybe what was created previously. So it's, it's mm-hmm. a fascinating topic. Um, I've got one last question for you as we finish up. As you, we talked a little bit about uh, the future of work, right, as that term, and we've talked about things that are hitting us now, like great resignation and quiet quitting and all that. As you project forward, and this is an opinion-based thing, so I'm going to get you to give an opinion as opposed to a, a, a kind of <laughs> objective point. Mm-hmm. How do you see the workplace evolving? And therefore, how do you see um, not so much the cultures in the workplace, but the the way that culture needs to be talked about evolving as we see this big shift and change. Hmm. I, yeah, I think what you said, future work is happening now because as we've seen and experienced this work life, you know, it's work life integration and how mm. we're, I think leaders are more progressive, proactive leaders are seeing it. And because of that, the shift comes in what are, you know, our most immediate and urgent priorities as a business and how are we going to be able to empower our people to be along with that ride so that they can be active contributors. And that shift of seeing it as, again, reinvesting them as as assets instead of that line item of being an expense, I think this is where we're heading. Um, Being Mm. able to have more open conversations with psychological safety. I don't know if you heard this study that Google did. It was a great study uh, called the Aristotle study. And understand, they all just want to understand what is, you know, what makes the team most uh, efficient. And it was longitudinal over three years, 30,000 something employees. And what they found was kind of counterintuitive. It wasn't the manager. It wasn't the greatest tools. It wasn't the software. It was actually having a sense of psychological safety. So, teams that had a sense of psychological safety where they can celebrate their wins and also say, oh man, I, I'm, I messed up. You know, oh, this is my mistake. I did this wrong. Those were the most effective teams. So I think the what the shift is, is that now we need that psychological safety more than ever. Seeing the stats that we have about mental health, seeing the stats of how people like are 
um, expecting well-being to be a part of, of the priority of a company. And what's interesting, there's a Deloitte study that just came out, was that 70% of CEOs also think well-being is a top priority, even more than their own career tra trajectory. They believe that well-being should be a priority. 50% of the employees in these companies believe that, but actually think that the CEO doesn't understand it. So CEOs are at 70 thinking, yeah, this is a priority. 50% are like, no, it actually isn't. So there's a huge gap there that I think we could start closing in by bringing in that transparency, bringing in that level of clarity, and then that sense of creating this more safe space so people can feel whole and heard and not deal with any bullshit because they want the real talk. So I think this is where we're heading. And uh, if you want to, you know, not fear things like quiet quitting and all that, then that's the level of engagement and alignment that we need for a new social contract with our, okay. uh, with our well, people. I think, I think the, the key words of the conversation have been authenticity and transparency, right? And, mm. and I think the reflection I have on that is it means that as leaders, leaders of businesses, we need to um, lean into some things that may feel uncomfortable. Right, because sometimes mm -hmm. there's vulnerability that comes from being that transparent. Like the risk is that if you are very transparent, you know, you might mm -hmm. polarize people, but actually what you also might do is bring the people that align with the vision and the purpose that you're creating closer to you as well. Yeah. And that's what I think is great about those leaders that that, that see that the difference between a good and great leader is for me at least, is that they have that level of curiosity to get to that point of feeling uncomfortable about these decisions they're making because then that's when they see the greatest growth as a leader and therefore the greatest growth as a company and the people that they're helping affect and impact well what a fascinating conversation i didn't i didn't grill you too much we didn't go down too many rabbit holes did we jen uh, no not too much actually i was expecting a lot more nick Oh no! Don't say that. Now, now I'm gonna now I'm gonna go to bed over here in the UK, feeling like I've um, uh, done a disservice to the the time we spent together. No, but um, in all seriousness, um, Jen, it's been awesome having you on the show. So thank you very much. Uh, your thank book, you. uh, which has just been released, I believe, um, certainly in it's saying last here year. last year. Sorry, twelfth of October, mm -hmm. twenty one. Actually, I'm having a look at the release date here in the UK. Uh, mm -hmm. Beyond oh, happiness, beyond happiness, uh, which has been a Wall Street Journal bestseller. If you are looking at your company and you are thinking you know what i need to look at performance not just from a financial standpoint um, but something a little bit different then i think this is a great book to go and have a look at particularly if you want to start to get a bit more intentional about your culture so we will link that into the show notes and all those sort of things um, for you jen but if people want to reach out to you and ask any questions or learn a bit more about your consultancy how can they do that mm -hmm. Um, deliveringhappiness.com and I just launched jenlim.com for the book's purpose, but I'm one of those old schoolers that believe in email. So you can email me too. Wow. There you go. Okay. It's so, amazing. So people will track you down if they, if they need to, don't worry. It happens. Yes. <laughs> all right, Jen, listen, that. a pleasure having you on scale up today. I want to wish you all the Thank very you, best with your business you as well. and book. And uh, yeah, speak Thank to you soon. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Nick. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you enjoy the show just as much as I enjoy creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me. It helps the show. Plus, it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally... 
If you want more information about anything you heard in today's show or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now to learn about our coaching, mentoring, and mastermind programs. See you soon.